This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. All right. So again, Galatians 2. We're going to read from verses 1 through 14. That was an amazing video. That just... uh, Let's get uh, let's get focused on on God's God's word here. Let me uh, just say a quick quick prayer. As we turn to the word of the Lord Jesus, we turn to you, the Lord of the Word. We ask that your Spirit would illuminate the Word, and that you would help us to grow in both grace and truth. Amen. So. Galatians 2, 1 through 14. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Thank you, Brandon. Good morning, church. Good morning. So we have plans, and then God says, I have a different plan. And so here we are this morning. We're in the book of Galatians. Uh, 
Fortunately, not too far removed from the book of Acts, as you'll see as we start looking into our text this morning. Um, but I appreciate you guys uh, having patience and understanding as things change, and that's okay. We'll get into Acts again next week, and Jamie will uh, catch us all up on where we are in the text. But this morning, we're in Galatians chapter 2. Um, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had those moments and experience, uh, maybe learn some new information that was so massively life-altering that you'll never view life the same way again? You guys, you guys have all experienced that. Uh, I experienced this when I learned about Reynolds rap. Uh, not Reynolds rap in general, uh, but um, have you ever gotten a Reynolds rap role and like really annoyed because you can never get it to rip right? It happens all the time, so annoying. So I would just refuse to rap things. Um, but did you know they know this and they built a feature into these packages that allow you to rip without like messing up? On the side of those boxes, there's these little tabs and you push those things in, and guess what? The little roll doesn't pop out of the box when you try to rip it off. Mind-blowing. I, I had no clue. This was incredible. Now, I love wrapping things all the time. Just ripping it off. I'm wrapping my kids, wrapping my dog. Let's wrap. I know all these tabs work. Uh, same with Tic Tacs. You ever try to get a Tic Tac out, and you're like, man, I feel like a squirrel because I dumped like six into my mouth. I just wanted one. Um, Tic Tac knows this too. Did you know that when you flip it upside down, that little uh, tab, check this out, that little tab is designed to hold just one Tic Tac. Now y'all are going to go buy a box of Tic Tacs now just to see if I'm right, but it's true. Uh, this next one is super important. This is really life-changing. See this plunger here? Did you know this plunger is not for your toilet? This plunger is for your sink. There are different plungers for different type of water vessels. <laughs> this plunger is for your toilet. So when you go home, I know y'all are going to go around and like move plungers into the appropriate spots in your house. When you make that switch, please use bleach uh, first before you make the change. Uh, but, but life, like messages, you, you discover this new truth, this thing you haven't seen before. It can change the way you see everything. It changes your life. And this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. You remember, we went through this a long time ago as we started the book of Acts, Paul's conversion. And Paul receives the message of the gospel. He was, he was a Jew, he was a devout Jew, and then he, he hears the message of grace, this, this revelation from God, saying, this Christ who you are persecuting is the Messiah, is the Savior of the world. And it changed everything for Paul. His whole life was turned upside down. In fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul defends that experience in chapter 1, prior to our text, verses 11 through 24. Paul talks about re receiving this message of the gospel, and he defends his apostleship, because remember, he was a persecutor of the, of the Christians. And, and they were having a hard time understanding, wait, who is this Paul guy? And he said, no, but I received the gospel, and I understand it now. So he's defending his message. And because he received this message of grace, his life was so turned upside down that he could only see how grace was spreading everywhere. And the reason I wanted to look at this text today was because it is so easy in a gospel preaching church, in a church that claims to be gospel-centered, for it to become kind of like white noise. And, and we forget that the gospel is not just for us. 
The gospel is not just for us in our relationship with God, but like Paul, if the gospel really changes us radically as we claim that it should do, it should spread to all of our relationships. See, the grace that God has given you is not just grace for you, it's a grace that is to be shown to others. And it should change our relationship with others. And we find Paul addressing that in this text. So what, I talk about gospel a lot. What is the what is the gospel that Paul was preaching? He's going to talk about that here. We use it here a lot. I want to sum it up for us. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 what the gospel is, that, that Christ was dead, he was buried, he was risen again, he's now seated at the right hand of God. But I'm going to sum up the gospel this way, that I believe Paul teaches, that the New Testament, the whole Bible is preaching is this. It's it's nothing other than the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection alone. That's the gospel. For you, for your sins. This is a gospel that says you don't have to do anything, be anything, act like anything to be accepted by and declared righteous by the one true God of the universe. Jesus has already accomplished that for you. Jesus was the thing you needed to be to be accepted by God. Jesus was the righteous one. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And you put your faith in that and you're declared righteous. That's the gospel. And I call this a gospel of free grace. It's, it's free because you don't have to pay for it. It's a gift. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Yet it is yours. And as Paul in this text shares his biography, how he is captured by the same gospel, he sees it changes everything. So if we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then, then we should be motivated to living a gracious life toward others. And that's what I'm after today. This, this is the big idea this morning. I want us to be able to say, I will be motivated by the gospel of free grace to live graciously toward others. And we're going to see in our text this morning three actions in particular the gospel does in our lives. If this is true, we should be moving and acting a certain way. So if you can look back in your Bibles, we're going to pick back up in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to see this first action, which is this. Grace moves in unexpected directions. Grace moves in unexpected directions. The uh, verse reads this, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I, Paul writing here, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of of a revelation And set before them, he's speaking here of the the leaders in Jerusalem, Peter, James, John, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So I say the gospel, uh, grace moves in unexpected directions. Well, what do I mean by it's moving? Where is it moving? 
So do a little historical background here. So Christianity in, in the New Testament, did you know this, was not considered necessarily to be a separate religion from Judaism. You guys remember in the book of Acts that it was Jews who became converted, became followers of Christ. Acts 2, remember in Acts 2 where the gospel or the, the, the Holy Spirit came and fell upon the apostles in the, in the upper room. They're waiting, and then they go out, and they're speaking in tongues, and the text says thousands of people got saved. Remember that? We're like, man, that would be awesome if thousands of people in Fort Wayne got saved at one time. Do you know who those thousands of people were? They were all Jews. Judaism was the religion of the day, and so Christianity was seen as, even by Romans, was seen as just like another sect of Judaism. So you had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees and you have the Zealots and now you have this new group of people who were Christ followers. They just saw it as another group of Jews, another weird offshoot that was happening often. See, Jesus was the, was the promised Jewish Messiah and, and those believers got that part right. But something else was happening that they weren't quite prepared for it, and they should have been if they understood the Old Testament prophets well. But they missed that that Messiah was coming not just to redeem Israel, but to redeem the world. Gentiles were supposed to be part of this all along. And you see this in in the trajectory of the book of Acts. So remember when Jesus said the the Great Commission, he said, um, we'll go from Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you follow the trajectory of like the geography of the book of Acts, guess where it starts? In Judea. And then it goes to Samaria. And then it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what Paul is doing. He takes it to the uttermost parts of the earth. See, the mission of God was for the whole world to know that Jesus is the Messiah. It was, the gospel was spreading outside the confines of cultural Judaism. They said it, I said it moves in unexpected directions because for a Jew, that is very unexpected. See, the Jews had very negative attitudes toward Gentiles, to anybody who was not a Jew. The Gentiles were dirty. They were unclean. They were despised. In fact, for many of them, Gentiles were the problem. They were the reason that Messiah hadn't come. The Romans were occupiers. They were preventing them from worshiping the way they wanted to worship. The Pharisees thought that the Messiah hadn't come because the Jews had wandered away. So they're setting up all these rules to make sure we stay on the straight and narrow so Messiah can come because we all need to be more righteous. That's why the Messiah hadn't come yet. And they thought God's promise of redemption was for them to be redeemed from the suppression of these sinful Gentiles. They missed that God wanted to redeem Jews and Gentiles both from their sin. Isn't that kind of like us, though? Don't we tend to think that the problem is other people? If only other people out there, only if our culture was different. Only if these people over here would vote differently. Only if Target wouldn't sell these things or Disney wouldn't play these movies. Then all of our problems would be better. It's so hard to look in the mirror and realize, wait, we have a sin problem. But 
the gospel is spreading to the world to deal with sin. And it was hard for them to see that this was happening beyond and outside all of their cultural trappings, outside of what they knew as Jews. They were a, that was their identity. But the gospel was moving out to the whole world, is moving to all people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And it wasn't calling people to adopt a certain culture or claim a certain nationality or adhere to a certain set of rules. It was creating a people of God called the church that is made up of blood-bought believers who trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And that was the message Paul was trying to share in Jerusalem. That's what it says. After 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem and he brought Titus with him. Why did he bring Titus? Because Titus was a Greek. He was not a Jew. And he brought Titus and said, see this, this guy here, this guy Titus, he's a believer. He has the Holy Spirit. And guess what? He wasn't even circumcised. But we know that God is saving him because he received the Holy Spirit. Here's what's awesome. Look, jump down to verse 7. How did these leaders in Jerusalem respond says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. They said, whoa, yes. Yes, we see it. Yes, God is moving there. God is working. God is saving the Gentiles. This is amazing. And they were all excited. They recognized God was moving in unexpected places, unexpected directions. So I, I think this text, this first point has two implications for us this morning. The first is this. I want us to say this morning that I will look for, participate in, and celebrate everywhere God is working. Sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our heads around why in the world would this group of Jewish believers have such a hard time at like accepting Gentiles as part of the church. Like, it seems crazy to us. Or does it? Can we do a little word association game? Do you guys like that? So I'm going to say a name of a place, and I want you to imagine people in that place, okay? Let's just do this for fun. Um, Chicago. San Francisco. Uh, France. Russia. Ukraine. Wabash, Kentucky, that's for you, Jamie, uh, Croatia, Uganda. Would you believe, or would you admit, how about say, would you admit honestly that some of those places, the first thing to come to your mind is not, oh, there's people there who are believers or need to be believers, 
some of those places are really uncomfortable for us. Some of those places, there are people that are like, can you believe those people? Look at San Francisco. They can't even keep their city clean. Do they need Jesus? Are there believers in San Francisco? Absolutely. God is not bound to a certain culture or people group. God is out to save cultures and people groups. God is looking for believers and is saving believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So how can we participate specifically? Well, as a church, we're supporting what's going on in Croatia, which in return, right, as you just saw, is supporting what's going on in Uganda. Did you know the experts say who study demographics, who study what's going on in the church, that in probably 50 years or less, Africa is going to be the Christian hub of the world. Christianity is blowing up across the continent of Africa, and we don't even know. Make it aware, make yourself aware that God is moving there. We're pl- we just planted a church in Wabash. God is moving in the city of Wabash just an hour that way. That way. I think I'm right. He says it that way. Maybe. (laughs) Do you pray for the churches in Africa, the believers in Russia, the believers in Ukraine? Do you share your faith, faith with everybody? See, we don't get to decide for ourselves who gets to hear the gospel and who gets to believe the gospel. We're just called to preach the gospel. Make yourself aware of the missions work happening around the world and even in this city. There are ministries across the world right now, world right now who would love for you to know what God is doing. I have a, a, my wife has a friend who has worked at, for an organization in the Philippines. And this organization, organization in the Philippines, what they'll do, this is mind-blowing, they will, um, they'll go into these brothels. They'll have women go into these brothels in the Philippines, and they'll um, pay for an hour with these women. And these women will go in and meet with these other women in these brothels. And for that hour, if they can speak English, they will spend an hour reading the Bible and sharing the gospel with them. For those who can't speak English, there's a language barrier. Sometimes they'll just sit and show pictures and just sit there and give them one hour of dignity to their life. And God is saving women in those dark places because somebody somewhere is willing to say, you know what, there's a cultural difference here. There is a, this is a place where I don't think God would move, but but they believe God is moving there and they're willing to go. Second implication is this. I will seek to identify, repent of, and remove bias, prejudice, and racism in my own heart. This is a hot topic in our culture. What's, what frustrates me, can I be honest about something that frustrates me since you're in my church? What frustrates me is if anybody in Christianity talks anything about race relations anymore, it seems like you immediately get written off as being woke or a critical race theorist. 
If you don't even know what that is, congratulations. You don't need to. But we write people off because we've become so polarized on this issue. But guess what? God cares about this issue. Racism, prejudice, biases of other people simply because of cultural differences or the way, because they look differently is a sin. And because of sin, we categorize and judge people based on their skin color, their family history, education, their financial situation, their career choices, their accents, or their use of a language. But God doesn't draw lines like that in his church. There is one line in the church. It is those who are on the outside and those who are on the in. And guess what God wants us to do with those who are on the outside? Invite them in. Instead, we're drawing lines all over the place. Rather than saying, hey, Jesus died for your sin. Come join what God is doing. God is making one people for himself called the church. And this church must be unified in mission in heart and love for Christ, in our redemption, and in our doctrine. In fact, if you go to Galatians 3, 27, just a few chapters later, Paul writes this, For as many as you of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are all one in Christ Jesus. The walls have been broken down. God isn't, doesn't have two or three or ten peoples that are his. There is one people of God. And if we don't purposely change our assumptions, what does that say about what we really believe about the gospel of grace? So the first point is this. God, grace moves in unexpected directions. The second is this, grace maintains an unashamed defense. Let's keep reading in Galatians 2, verse 4. Paul continues to write, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Old habits are hard to break, aren't they? And for these Jews, like I said before, their identity was their most important thing. It was their cultural heritage. Heritage. And they understood, if they understood the Old Testament, there was, there was a place, there was opportunity for, for Gentiles in the Old Testament to become part of the Jewish community. But they needed to become a Jew first. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to um, adhere to dietary laws. They had to take on all the aspects of the Jewish community culture and all the outlines in the law. But as we all know, can the law save you? So they could become a Jew. These Gentiles could become Jews, but adhering to all those things would not change their heart. It would not save them because sin was the problem, not the fact that they weren't Jews. And Paul understood that. 
And he understood that preaching anything else was nothing short of spiritual slavery. Do you see that, what he wrote there in verse 4? So they might bring us into slavery, preaching that message. There's no freedom in that. Making people become Jews, what you're doing is you're adding a yoke onto them, this, this burden they can't carry. Now, oh, you can become a follower of Christ, but now you have to do all these things. And they'll try to do all these things, and guess what they'll do? They'll fail. And he knew firsthand because he himself said he was the chief of sinners. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law better than anybody, and he knew himself he could not keep it. So why would we make other people try to keep this? See, Paul worked hard to preach a gospel of free grace based on faith alone for anyone who believed. But some people are so opposed to grace and freedom. We saw that here some, some men snuck in. They're like, no, this is too good to be true. We can't let these Gentiles come in here and, and change everything up. And they had defiantly opposed to anyone who is not adhering to the law. But Paul fought off those enemies. He refused to get, give in. He knew the gospel he was preaching was from God. That was the whole point of the end of chapter one. This is a message from God. But did you catch why he did it? Look at verse five with me again. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Here it is. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for who? for you. See, sometimes we think we preach the gospel and the only reason is because we need doctrinal purity. Like, we got to protect this truth because somebody else might come in and ruin it. Do you think God can defend his truth? Does he need you to make sure that it doesn't get distorted? He can, his truth can stand on his own. There is a point and there is appropriateness to defend truth throughout church history. That's why we've done. That's why we have creeds. That's why we have written doctrinal statements. Because those things need to be protected. But they don't, we don't protect the truth. Paul didn't protect that truth just so we have like this, our, our, this head knowledge so we know that we're right. What does it say? He protected it for the sake of others. We protect the truth because we aren't going to put a burden on other people. It's for love that we fight for truth. It's for love for others that we fight for truth, not for our own haughty pride. I see two implications here for us. First one is this, is I will fight against legalism for the sake of others. So the question is, do you fight for the liberty of others or fight against the liberty of others? What I mean by liberty is lead, liberty is the freedom to live without fear of condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we so often walk around with this feeling of condemnation, like somehow we're not measuring up, and then we project that onto other people. But Paul says, because of what Christ accomplished, there is no condemnation. So why do we walk around expecting other people to live up to standards that God hasn't set. 
We should be fighting for the freedom of others. If God has not drawn a line in the sand about a behavior or action, do you fight for that person or do you immediately find ways to, to draw lines and barriers from, from people doing those things? Let me give you some examples. Some, some ways you might know that you're adding things, drawing lines, putting barriers where maybe God hasn't. Have you ever thought negatively about someone because they may listen to a certain kind of music? Pastor Jamie, just full disclosure, he's not here to defend himself, but you know that he listens to jazz music sometimes in the office. He does not listen to worship music all day long. <gasps> what if you found out that Adam listens to country music? That would never happen, just so you know. Uh, maybe you judge people because they wear a certain type of clothes. What if Irv walked in with leather pants on today? <laughs> You're welcome for the image. <laughs> what about people who vote for a certain political party? What about how people spend their money? Whether, what about how people serve or don't serve? The books they read, maybe they read Star Wars fan fiction instead of some classic, you know, the Homers, the Iliad. Maybe they don't even own a Paul Tripp book. <gasps> maybe they've never read Gentle and Lowly. <gasps> maybe they drink or don't drink certain beverages. In our minds, we have all these lists of things. This is what spiritual people do. This is what real Christians do. And did you know that none of those things are in Scripture? None of those are markings in Scripture of what somebody who is a Christian does or doesn't do. Now, I'm not saying that there are certain things that are more wise or less. I'm not saying that all things are profitable. Some things aren't profitable, even though they're free for you to participate in. What I am saying is we be careful about judging somebody's walk with the Lord based on our external standards that are not in Scripture. And do you fight, actively fight for people's freedom? Don't condemn things God has not condemned, but also don't approve things God has clearly condemned. And there's sp serious spiritual consequences to this. Let me tell you a story. My dad has a good friend of his. He um, used to work construction with him for years. I got to work for the guy one summer. And I remember one time Roland uh, said to my dad, you know, I don't, I don't want to become a Christian. My dad had tried and witnessed him multiple times. And my dad was like, really? That's pretty bold. Why, Roland? And he looked at Ro uh, Roland looked at him. He's like, because then I won't be able to drink my beer. And somehow, at some point in his life, somebody communicated to him that if you're a Christian, that means you can't drink beer, and, and he didn't want to give that up. Now, are there certain sinful behaviors that people need to give up, they need to repent of? Sure. But this guy has not become a believer because somebody told him that real Christians aren't going to drink alcohol? Number two, I will not be ashamed or offended by the gospel of grace. 
So we like laws. Wonder why? Because laws are easy. They're like little check boxes. I did this. See, this person did this or didn't do this. We like them when it makes us look better. It was really convenient for the Jews to adhere to circumcision, right? It happened to them eight days after they were born. They don't remember. It's much easier to throw labels on something than to learn discernment. But we can't be ashamed of freedom. And the liberty that comes from the gospel and showing people grace. Second action this is, is this grace maintains an unashamed defense. And the last, grace makes uncomfortable demands. We're going to jump down to verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. See, Peter got it. But then he came, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, Paul just demonstrated that God was working among the Gentiles apart from the law. And we saw that Peter experienced this. In fact, if you remember in the book of Acts, we saw how God told Peter, hey, he gave him a dream. There's this big sheet coming out of the sky and there's all these unclean animals. And, and God was like, Peter, go eat these animals, trying to communicate to Peter that, look, it's not about clean or unclean. The Gentiles are part of the people of God. And Peter was like, no. And eventually, Peter finally got the message. And Peter could have bacon. A lot of you are so excited for Peter right now. That's probably the second biggest news, probably the second benefit of the gospel for Peter outside of his salvation is that he got to enjoy bacon, I'm sure. And Peter was eating with Gentiles. You've got to understand how huge that was. We don't get what it's... Like, we eat in restaurants all the time with strangers, so this is hard for us to grasp. But back then, to eat with a stranger was to share communion and fellowship, to consider, like, I have personal relationship with this person. So he's eating with Gentiles, and that was huge. But the fear of man is really strong, isn't it? And these influential men show up, and he pulled away. And for us, this sounds a little kind of high school drama Like, what? Come on, you're worried about what people think? But for Paul, this was deathly serious. Look at what he says in verse 14. It says, when I saw that their conduct was, what? Not in step with the truth of the gospel. Saying, Peter, you claim to believe in the gospel of grace, but your actions right now are showing that you're a hypocrite. You don't actually believe it. Imagine the spiritual crisis something like that would throw the Gentile believers into. He was eating with them. Yes, we're believers. And all of a sudden he pulls away. And now those Gentiles are like, wait, maybe we're not saved. Maybe what Peter told us is not true. Maybe the gospel isn't what I thought it was. There's spiritual consequences to this type of behavior. 
These Gentiles were spiritual babies. They, they didn't have the pedigree that the Jews did. They didn't have millennia of history the Jews had. These were pagans who came to know Christ. They probably had really bad theology. And so they're still learning about this God who would save them. And all of a sudden, the leader of the church, the leader of this new movement, pulls away from them because they aren't like everybody else. Imagine what that does to somebody. And that's why Paul confronted Peter. So for us, two implications again. First is I will not pull away or put up walls between me and others who are different than me. And we do this all the time without even realizing. We need to be very conscious. Think about the conversations you have. When, when you're talking with people, maybe there's somebody new around you or somebody's not a believer. Are you aware of, of the things you talk about? Do we use Christianese and, and confuse people and make people feel like outsiders because they're just not aware? Do we have inside jokes that exclude others? I mean, do you actually talk to new people? Do you have relationships with unbelievers or baby Christians? Do you show interest in them? We have to ask ourselves, who do we not want to be seen or associated with and why? Is that reason biblical or is it based on your fear of your reputation among those who are on the in crowd? See, grace demands that we build bridges, not walls. We don't build bridges by compromising the truth. Okay, hear me. We stand on truth, but we build bridges with those who are different than us. We don't build walls. Number two, I will confront brothers and sisters in Christ who are not showing grace. I will confront brothers and sisters in Christ who are not showing grace. And that's a really uncomfortable thing to do. But listen, the gospel is at stake. Our theology, the things we teach here, the gospel we preach is a lived out gospel. Our lives tell the truth of what we believe. So you don't get to claim a theology of grace with God and not walk in that grace toward others. We can't say that the law has been fulfilled by Christ. There's no demands to be in the club and then make demands on other people to be in the club. We do this for the sake of others. We preach all the time, God desires to save people. That's why we're going through the book of Acts, to show you, to help us learn God is on a mission. And he wants people to live in, live in liberty, to be free from the condemnation of the law, of sin, of death. Yet when we act as if there's all these standards that other people have to meet to be accepted, to be part of this community, what we're communicating is the opposite of what the gospel preaches. We are responsible for each other's spirituality and discipleship, and we must try as hard as we can to show grace and freedom to others. See, the gospel of grace is constantly under attack in the church. I feel like every year there's some new message, new trend that the church grabs onto, and it becomes the grace and, grace and, Jesus and. 
Jesus in justice. Jesus in this. Jesus in that. That's not Christ alone. That's not faith alone. That's not grace alone. And we need to be careful in our own hearts because we are so drawn to those things. We're so tempted to be caught up in what other people think and these other things that seem so important. And some things are important. But be careful about letting those other issues, those other things you care about, those other standards, things that are cultural, that aren't biblical, and even some biblical things, take the place of what the message of the gospel is, Christ alone. See, God has saved us in spite of ourselves. His grace was poured out on us when our sin and pride were an affront to him when we were enemies of God and we were more reprehensible to God than any person you can think of that is reprehensible to you. Yet he gave his one and only son to die for your sins. Who are we not to extend that same grace to others? It's a gospel of free grace. May we be motivated to share the grace that God has given us with others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you that you gave the church men like the Apostle Paul who would go face to face and toe to toe with people who were preaching a different message, who were not living in step with the truth of the gospel so we can learn from those things and be convicted ourselves of allowing issues and differences, other laws that we set up in our own minds to be barriers to other people. God, the gospel you've given is that salvation is available in Christ alone. We don't want to add anything to that, so protect this church, protect this message, and let our lives demonstrate that we really do believe that. We want to see this city come to know you. We want to see our neighbors come to know you. Because it's in you where life is found. And it is the name of your precious son that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved. <coughs>